Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. But also, didn't they, like, in a teaser say early 2024? I feel like that yeah, was that's in, like, what one of the... saying. We planned everything around early 2024. <laughs> yeah. Like, I apologies that I believed you, Disney. Everybody and welcome to Monster Donut, a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spin-offs. I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant. I'm Emily, a classic scholar-ish. And today we're going to be talking all about New York Comic Con and the Percy Jackson TV series, uh, joined by fellow New York Comic Con attendee and Percy Jackson podcaster, Mike from The Newest Olympian. Hi, Mike. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to make my Monster Donut debut here to talk about the fun day that we all had together at New York Comic Con. It's it's a delight. And, you know, I'm just so glad that after months of me uh, finishing the fifth book, you know, I've been waiting for this show for like three and a half months. It's been such a struggle for me personally, someone who didn't start reading these books until two years ago <laughs> for the podcast. <laughs> Right. Congratulations on finishing the uh, first series. Thank you. Thank you. It took yeah, it took me two years to read five children's books, so I'm I'm at a great pace. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it's uh, it's it's funny how perfectly things worked out to where I'm releasing or I released the final episode of me covering the Last Olympian this past Monday, so on November thirteenth, and then the show's like coming out like a month later. So it's worked out well. Thank you, thank you, Disney, for considering my podcast and your scheduling. I, I appreciate it. <laughs> we have a similar situation where the last episode about like the main the main three series is coming out the day before the show comes. Let's out. Let's go- see. Look, I'm so glad they consulted us. Shout out to you know Rick and John and Dan and everyone behind the scenes consulting with us about the release date. People are right. like, oh, why did it get moved up? It's because of the three of us. So you're welcome to everyone. (laughs) (laughs) So just for context, in case people don't know your voice, can you tell us a little bit about your relationship to Percy Jackson and what The Newest Olympian is? 
Sure. So the Noose Olympian is a podcast that I started in September of 2021, which is a journey to determine if Percy Jackson is a book series that we've all slept on. I can now with confidence say yes but basically the podcast is me i never read the percy jackson books as a kid so it's me going through them for the first time as an adult and then i have just a rotating cast of different guests people who are super fans the two of you have been on the show multiple times and i'm sure will be on in the future as i get into heroes of olympus trials of apollo all the other stuff but yeah i just you know chapter or two at a time just making my way through the series trying to either predict what happens next or poke fun at things that don't make sense but really it's mainly just me gushing about how much i love these books and these characters and rick and everything about them so yeah that's the newest olympian that's the podcast that i make and uh post episodes on every monday wherever pods are cast highly recommend especially if you're wanting to like reread the books without actually rereading the books Mm -hmm. i feel like it's very (laughs) comprehensive like you really get like so much out of like each sort of chapter through it which is really fun yeah, I try to go really thoroughly. So, like, honestly, if you don't want to have to either go through reading them or listening to the audiobooks, which are interesting, uh, <laughs> you can just listen to the pod and then you get some other fun, like, perspectives. It's like a digital book club. It's a good time. Shall we get into Comic-Con? Let's do yeah. it. Yeah. So what this episode is about to be, last month, almost exactly a month ago, all three of us went to Comic-Con as press which means we all attended the panel and also got to do some roundtable interviews afterward with the panelists. But as we mentioned at the time, we weren't able to talk at all about what we learned there or use the audio from the interviews that we did until the actor strike ended. But now that the strike has ended, we thought we'd sit down and talk through our experiences at Comic-Con and the panel and the clips from the show that were shared there and talk about what was said in these interviews, which we'll play audio from as we talk. And that audio quality, it's not great. The mic isn't facing me or Emily, it's facing the interviewees. So just a heads up before we get into that. Yeah, because for anyone unaware, if the, when they would do it, it's like we would sit at a table and at least at my table, there was like eight reporters or I guess seven in me and then two empty chairs. And then they were paired up, John and Dan, the EPs, and then James was solo and then Dan mm-hmm. and Tish were together, and then Eric and Jeff, the VFX guys, were together. So made sense to kind of have the people doing similar things paired together. Yeah. And then for us, I think there was two groups of us where there was two of us and another group where there were three of them, and they'd sort of assumed only one of us were going to be there for some reason. Okay. So there was like a weird shuffle around where they put us in a separate room, which was great because it was just the two of us and then another group where there were three of them, but only one person was actually asking questions. So Phoebe and I got a lot of questions. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, because ours was basically like one question each. Oh, yeah. And then like one time, like one person didn't get a question in and then whatever journalism site she wrote for was like, oh, they don't let me use any un- any information from like other questions. It can only be from the ones that I ask. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry that I asked a question like this is your job. And I'm just going to like <laughs> add a clip into my episode, maybe. <laughs> like, Oops. <laughs> sorry that I asked a silly question about Listerine bottles. That's what I was worried that like. Because I've watched roundtable interviews before, and I have seen ones where it's just, like, people, like, clamoring over each other trying to get a question in. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm going to be able to handle that. I don't know if I'm getting anything (laughs) in. Yeah. Ours was very respectful. It was just, like, each person would kind of go one by one. But then at one point, like, they swooped one of the people or the pairs away before, like, each of us got to ask one question. Mm. And I felt guilty because I was like... I don't matter. <laughs> I don't have a boss that's like, give me the the date, the <laughs> deadline. 
She's fired now. Have you heard? They fired her. (laughs) You didn't get a question into James Bobin. What are you doing? (laughs) But the panel. So the panel was made up of John Steinberg, who is one of the showrunners, Dan Schatz, who is also a showrunner, James Bobin, who is the director of the first two episodes and is also an executive producer, Dan Henna, Tish Monahan, production designer, costume designer, Eric Henry, who's the visual effects supervisor, and Jeff White, who is the ILM stagecraft visual effects supervisor, I believe is the correct title. Yes. I'm looking at, th- I'm, I may or may not be looking at the alleged tip sheet that they gave us that they didn't <laughs> say we couldn't take. So allegedly I'm looking at a eight and a half by 11 piece of paper and it says he's the ILM VFX supervisor. It basically means cool. he's the guy in charge of what's it called? The volume, the big, yeah. the volume, yeah. the capital V, the volume, yes, the volume, <laughs> but it's yeah, like the LucasArts thing that Disney is using. And I think other shows are starting to use too, but it was, it was funny because I was at a table with like all the these other like normal like media journalist types and then I was like the one person in the room who had no idea what was going on and I asked I was like what's the the like big tv thing that they're using and then in unison all seven people were like oh the volume and I was like oh yeah and they were like yeah you know like the one in the Mandalorian and I was like I haven't seen every show guys like I don't know Yeah, Phoebe definitely had to educate me a bit on uh, how Disney works because uh, Phoebe knows a lot about how Disney is just from being a fan and also someone who wants to work in that realm. Yeah, I I did know a decent amount about the volume ahead of time. The one that they worked on is, I think, the biggest one out there. um, That it's their first project that's being filmed on that big stage. So. I'm excited to see what it looks like. Yeah. Yeah. And what it is, from my understanding, is it's basically instead of having blue or green screens for the background, they actually are able to, like, put up a video, essentially, or special effects of the actual backdrop. So the actors are able to actually, like, have something to look at um, while they're shooting, which is really awesome. Yeah. It also helps light the space. Yes. Mm They talked about the lighting being like a really helpful aspect of it. And then in one of the interviews, like at my round table, they had mentioned the VFX guys said that when you have a bunch of kid actors, it just helps them because if you have like a really trained actor, you know, like Ian McKellen in Lord of the Rings and he's looking at a green screen and a tennis ball and they say, look at this and pretend that like, yeah, he can do it. But if you're 11, it's a little harder. Mm. So they said that it also just kind of helped with this particular production being a lot of younger, newer actors. Yeah. So for the actual audio of our conversation, um, we'll play that now. Thank you, Editing Phoebe. Eric and Jeff. Hi. Hey, guys. Hello. How are you? Thanks. How are you doing? Doing well. What's everybody from? Um, so I'm Phoebe. I'm from Monster Donut, which is a Percy Jackson podcast. Oh, okay. awesome. <laughs> I'm Emily. I co-host Monster Donut. Okay. okay. My name's Lyra. I'm here with Mockers Dance Radio Station, WMC. This is Julian. This is Nina. Nice. Right. Nice to meet you. So I start with a question for both of you, for sure. What was your sort of approach when you started creating all those amazing, like, fantastical settings that we're going to be seeing? The settings. Um, it starts with Dan. Uh, Dan Hanna is, you know, our uh, visual effects, I always say, is kind of a division of uh, the art department. And so Dan had a stable of amazing artists who would work with John, work with um, Dan Schatz, and come up with, this is what we think it is, this is what, you know, and we'd show it to Rick, and uh, and he'd approve it, and then you, you start with that. Um, I was saying to Dan uh, Hennon today, 
just before we went on stage, I said, you know, Dan, I, I probably should tell you that when it comes to Camp Half-Blood, we shot it, as you know, with a couple of things here and a couple of things there. Um, we decided to add a bunch of stuff. <laughs> and he goes, oh yeah, what'd you add? And I go, a volcano. So he used the volcano and, and when he was talking about it, I go, we added a volcano because it's mentioned and if you go on sites, you know, throughout the internet, there's all kinds of images of what people think, you know, sketches and things and illustrations that people have done. Um, and so we just kind of riffed on that and added. So it, it's a collaboration that starts with Dan and then, you know, moves on. And the same thing can be said of um, the underworld. I was just saying a, a few minutes ago that, um, that John wanted it to have a ceiling, not a sky. And um, so we have a great art team who came up with an idea that there would be mountains that um, you'd see kind of a black flow out from those mountains that would show you, oh, okay, so there's like not a sky there, there's a ceiling, and it almost looks like the rain is is hitting that mountain and then flowing out from it. So you know, really interesting things that come after uh, we get into post um, that I think takes, takes all of the, the look up a notch and into something that is an arresting image just the second you see it, it's like, ooh, okay, I haven't seen anything like that. Uh, so hopefully people uh, love that. <laughs> How does it feel to do the special effects and have everything come all together? Um, <laughs> well, still working on it. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> it hasn't uh, quite after, made after it all together. On Monday, Eric and I will be back into it. But um, it's it's really incredible to see something of this scale, right? Like, it's it's like eight movies. <laughs> <laughs> Put it, putting it all together and each one has like big action set pieces and big uh, creatures in it and big environments but I think what's fun for me about watching the clips is that at the end of the day like I've worked on a lot of movies that have all that but you don't really care about the characters and to watch those, the three actors um, pull this together you really care about them and then all the work we do is just in support of, of that so that's what's been so fun for me is like when that first teaser trailer came out it's like oh man it's really impactful you know especially if you're if you're a fan of the books and, and you know another thing that we haven't talked about at all is Chiron yeah um, is, yes uh, he's amazing Jeff and I um, thought <laughs> we right made from a deal. the start yeah it's like we gotta have him on a real horse because creating a CG horse, while absolutely possible, and it's been done and it's been done well, this one was just gonna be under such scrutiny and we knew that if you put a person on the horse, that no matter what we've seen, horseback ride, you've watched people, it, you move a certain way, there's a certain thing that goes on and we felt like that actor's gonna want that, you know, and, and it'll make it so much more believable. And I think with one exception, he was on that horse the whole time. And then Jeff and his team had to take him from the center of the horse and move him up to the, to the front. And what we would do with uh, Walker, we'd walk alongside him and we'd tell Walker where he had to look. Because I go, I know Glenn's here, yeah. but you gotta look, you know, and he's such a great little actor. Um, you know, he was quickly learned and he's, his eye lines right every time and the you know the proof will be when you see it uh, we think it's 
absolutely flawless. When I've done them before, it's always like the actor on a box, and then we just add the horse in, and it never feels quite right. Because actually, quadrupedal like horse animation is very hard to, to pull off. So yeah, that we sort of cooked up this idea and we did a little test and everybody went for it. Um, my, not right away. Not right away. We, we had to convince them. We had to <laughs> convince them because having a horse on set is a you know it's not a trivial thing. Um, but uh, I've got one daughter that is super into horses and would have been very upset if they didn't feel real. So, as Eric said, we had to move Glenn up to the front. Then we have to connect his lower half into the, uh, into the horse that we recorded. Um, what was so great about that was he's wearing a jacket, and then the jacket needs to lay over the horse as well. And just to have access to somebody like Tish, who would just say, well, how, how should this look? You know, yeah. how, how would you manufacture a coat if it needed to lay over a centaur body? And, she came up with it and yeah, we just went back and forth with her so I think that's where you see that kind of like collaboration yeah, between everybody that makes it so and the, the detail of, of going in and saying well someone he wouldn't just wear a human coat yeah. someone would have tailored <laughs> yeah, this yeah exactly him. we tried a human coat and it was like stretched yeah. so awkwardly <laughs> um, well while we're talking about some of the creatures that are in this um I wonder if you could talk a little bit more, you mentioned it a little bit in the panel, but um, talk a little bit more about sort of the horror-adjacent visuals that are in uh, this series, because there's things like the underworld and the monsters. And like, how do you walk that line between like what's suitable for children and what's going to satisfy long-time fans? Yeah, um, you know, obviously when they when they arrive at the underworld, it's it's, you know, there's a lot of people who are there in line they've all died and so uh, John and Dan came up with uh, okay you know are we gonna <clears throat> are we going to have them all look like ghouls or whatever and I think what was a lot more fun uh, was that they gave people costumes um, like you know a downhill uh, snow ski racer um, a matador uh, you know you'll, you'll see different walks of life um, you know a person who died in their sleep is still in their pajamas you know sort of that sort of thing seemed like a much more fun way of taking it and I think that probably is part of that making it accessible to um, a slightly younger audience and still um, having it be you know a a fun thing for an older audience. Mm -hmm. So you don't scare them and you don't um, have something that's like, oh God. Disengaged. Yeah, exactly, yeah. perfect. Yeah. And um, so I, I think there's there's many times where we, you know, successfully um, threaded that needle. Yeah. Sometimes we couldn't help ourselves, we made it too scary. And then John and Tim were like, pull back. We'd love to see that version. Oh my god. Yeah. The zombie minotaur. That's right. Yeah. Um, Ted, did you. This um, is going to be last question, guys, sorry. Okay. Um, did you find yourself um, feeling pressure to conform to what may be an audience expectation of a certain monster or environment? Or did you feel more like you really wanted to set the imagery apart? I'd say that the um, overriding concern was to make it what Rick wanted, you know, like what the books had stated there. I mean, 
not everything is fleshed out really, you know, clearly. And so that gives us some, some freedom. But yeah, we, we just wanted him to be absolutely happy because we know that, you know, in the past he wasn't as happy. So this was our chance to, to give him what he wanted. Um, yeah, I, I think that we leaned more on that, on the accuracy. Um, it, 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 it's where we started in every discussion, uh, whether it was Pegasus, oh, should it be white, should it be black? Well, eventually, blacky, you know, I guess we should make it black. And that's, you know, that's what the direction we go in. Um, but, you know, there's still always, there's still always freedom. And, um, but it was always something that we showed to Rick. Yeah. And say, what do you think? And uh, so I can say that everything was blessed by him. You know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> he, he didn't have anything that, and when he did, we made a correction. Yeah. Um, so I think as a reader of the series and my daughter as a reader of the series, that, that that's what you want, you know? Um, if, you, if you stay within those lines, they were, wildly popular to the tune of a hundred million you know books and more sold stay with what's right and good and uh, and when you deviate um, like I said we added some things that maybe weren't in the books but um, when cap in Camp Affleck but it had been sort of thought about and so we added a waterfall here a lake there uh, the fist it shows up um, you know that you see it up on the hill so um, the books were the guiding light mm -hmm. and we, we stuck with it um, and got him to bless it <laughs> what I loved was that John and Dan would also like provide parameters to us and then we had a lot of room to still explore within that like for Medusa you know the temptation with Medusa I think is that the snakes are all like actors of their own and first we started with like Jessica did this incredible performance and then as we went to approach the snakes it's like well okay it's a curse they're not they're not characters on their own what should a head full of snake hair actually look like so we spent a lot of time looking at essentially piles of snakes and how do they move against each other and it was such a complicated thing because we're essentially now you know trying to design it from every shot but uh, within the parameters of like they should just be snakes we were able to come up with something very cool that worked with their performance and riptide was yeah. was something like that yeah. too I think we talked about it not being like a lightsaber um, okay so then how does it appear because it you know kind of grows like a lightsaber um, and and I I thought that it would be interesting to have a, a thin light that basically it's almost like blown glass being pulled from the center out that reaches the hill mm -hmm. And there's a great, in the Minotaur scene, he does that, and yeah. you get to see that. And everyone who's seen it has said, that so cool. looks awesome. Yeah, we yeah. saw it in the trailer. In the, yeah. in the trailer, <laughs> right? All right, guys, yeah. we're going to end it there, but thank you so much. We're going to move on to another okay. guys. All right, thank, thank you. you. It's nice to meet you. Something else I talked about that was interesting was... This is like an add-on to the thought about the volume, but they were saying it was also really cool in enhancing the cinematography of it. Because that was something I noticed when like watching the clips. It feels like there's a lot of care. Like it feels really like 
you know when you're watching like a really high budget beautiful show where you can tell like there's been so much thought and care put into it you know what I mean where it's like they're putting together like a movie which is much shorter so they can put a lot more care into every shot but it feels it gives that feeling yeah there's they all of these guys talk with such passion like when I was looking back on the the interviews that we did there's just so much like energy coming off of they're all so excited to talk about this yeah yeah they're super jazzed about it. I like the question that you asked Phoebe about towing the line between horror and what is good for kids versus not, because that came up, I, th- I don't know if they talked about it on the big panel, but it came up in the little round table that I did as well, that that's something they have to consciously think of is like, you want it to feel real because otherwise it doesn't feel like there are stakes, but you can't make it too scary because it is a program for children. And I think that that is just like a fascinating thing to think about. Cause like these monsters are scary, but when it's a book, it's not as big of a deal. Cause you're, if you're a kid, you can just like imagine it. But when you have to like actually put it to screen, you do have to decide like what's creepy, what's too creepy. Yeah. This is something I've done like a lot of thinking about <laughs> is like the fact that Percy acts as sort of like a barrier between what's whatever's going on around him and like what the audience sees when you're reading the book because he can tell you as much as he wants to or doesn't want to mm-hmm. and you know it's a book you imagine it however you imagine it which in in some horror can end up making the thing even scarier but can also have the opposite effect in some like children's and middle grade books because then you can sort of go further than you would be able to on screen because no one's actually seeing it a, a lot of these guys actually brought up when they were talking about the series and when they were talking about creating TV for kids, they always dropped in the fact that there are a lot of heavy topics going on here and that like the, there's actually a lot of serious material going on inside the books, which I really liked that they acknowledged that. Like there were multiple people in the roundtables who would bring up like, yes, this is for kids, but there's a lot going on in this book series and that we had to honor that too. Yeah, there's a lot of like how they're working with specifically the main trio, but also like all of the kids too, of just like really putting in the time and care to make sure that they're given all of the resources they can to like really do the best possible job. There's just so much there of just like, we really care so deeply about making sure that this is all done, not just like we find ways to put in the fun, but also just like that everyone's having a great time and it's a really great experience, but also that it's like telling an amazing story. Yeah. No, it seems like they put a lot of care into it. I know one of the things, at least in my roundtable, they said about the horror is like they'd go through a lot of iterations of the Minotaur. I think they said the Mm -hmm. first time it was like not furry enough. So it just like looked too (laughs) scary in the face. So like adding more fur made it. Uncanny Valley. (laughs) Right. They were like adding more fur made it like a little fluffier. But then they were talking about like they did intentionally make it run on all fours because something running on all fours Mm -hmm. is scarier than. And then you get the reveal of it, like, standing up. So you get, like, that daunting moment as well. So they definitely put a lot of thought into it. But, yeah, they're, I, I like that they are not trying to, like, make it feel like, like it is a show for children, but it's not a kid's show kind of thing. Like, they're not afraid of touching on serious subjects and stuff like that. And they're trusting the actors and the audience, which is really cool. Yeah, I also love yeah. that uh, the trailer came out today also. we Yeah, trailer <laughs> I day. loved getting a little glimpse of the Chimera in it too because they were. it seemed like that was one of the things that they were the most excited about. So yeah. it was really cool mm-hmm. to have like, heard how excited they were about it and to see it and be like, whoa. Yeah, which just to theorize, going off of the trailer, have we noticed that it looks like Echidna is on the train and not just in the arch? 
Oh, I thought that was the inside of the I thought that was the inside of the arc. I thought that too, but then I realized that the outside the windows looked like it was moving. Oh, Unless I'd I'm have going to rewatch crazy, it. But I think they might be taking like the train happened to be making a stop in St. Louis and then we went and we got on the arch and Echidna happened to be there. They're taking that and going like no, actually, she followed them onto the train and she chases them oh, into the arch, oh, is my guess. Oh, interesting, interesting. Because they definitely had a clip of, like, the arch with an explosion in it, like, in the in the beginning. Yeah, like, it, he's definitely going on the arch, in, yeah. into Although, the arch, I there guess. there is an elevator, but, so maybe that's the movement? Sound off in the comments. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> they also mentioned Cerberus, who was also debuted in the trailer, which was really exciting. Yeah. And Cerberus really looks like, like, there's some, like, Cerberus is, like, snapping up at them. So I'm like, what's going on there? I also noticed that Percy had the ball in his hand instead of Annabeth. Annabeth does obedience training. I know. But does Come she on. give him the All ball right. at some point? I don't know. Couldn't tell you, even though I just read it. We'll <laughs> I'm sounding off in the comments. I don't see movie. I don't see movement in the windows. Really? I think it's in the okay. arch. Yeah. <laughs> whatever. Whatever. Isn't it like it looks like a meal cart to me? I thought it just looks like the arch, but I've never been inside the arch. Maybe the arch just looks like a train. Anyway, at the thing, something I learned really that was really interesting from Eric and Jeff was I asked them like, yeah, sure. There's all these big fancy effects you guys are doing, but what is something like really small and tiny that people might not know? So you're really proud of, and. Jeff like lit up. He was so excited to answer this question. He like jumped in and like st- like stepped over Eric, who's saying something. He's like, "I'm so sorry. I just have a really good answer for this." And they <laughs> said that at some point when Annabeth makes an iris message, they mm. have a like a crystal or something to make like a prism to make a rainbow. And they said when they were filming it, one of the people on the staff suggested because they're trying to figure out how do we make the lighting is there a way that we can like put the lighting like on her face and not have to just like cgi everything and someone on the staff was like i have an idea let me see if this works and they grabbed a listerine bottle and an iphone flashlight and that's how they did the prism like reflection i think for the lighting of like it shining in annabeth's face is (laughs) iphone flashlight and listerine bottle i love that it's so cool that's the stuff that's the coolest yeah genius (laughs) genius <laughs> yeah i don't i don't care about volume i don't care about cgi i care about thing that you did in your high school you know theater class for your homework oh yeah but yeah speaking of people who talked about like how much detail and thought they yes. put into everything uh the costume designer tish uh, monaghan you 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 would have prior seen her work uh in i think the first two twilight or the second two twilight movies which i always say are the best costume designed of the trilogy <laughs> I'm always saying that. I've seen the baseball scene, and that's it. Yeah. But, I mean, she also did Schmigadoon, and I've seen the costumes in that, and they yeah. were But she and the panel talked a lot about the orange t-shirt for Camp Half-Blood, oh. which the way she described the process was so cool. Yeah. They, they like, made a custom dye. Like, they, they first were trying to find, like, the exact correct color of orange, and then they went through, like, a bunch of iterations and then found it. And then they couldn't find a t-shirt company that made that right color. So they were like, okay, we're going to create our own dye. And then they made their own correct orange dye. But then they had to start dyeing a bunch of shirts. And then they said that they were running out of like plain white shirts. So they had to dye like different color shirts. And they had to make different versions. And then they were washing them differently for each cabin, which makes sense. Like the Aries 
ones are more faded because they get sweatier and like the Hephaestus ones have burn marks and stuff because of the forges like there was so much effort put into something that like most people won't know they'll just be like oh yeah they bought orange shirts no they created their own shade of orange it's so cool yeah Yeah. one of my favorite things when looking at stuff like this is all the details and so I just love seeing that on screen and I love knowing that someone's really thought about it that way and been like what are these kids doing every day like what what are they how are they customizing like how how is each of these characters sort of making things their own um so i'm so excited to see the results of that yeah i i wish maybe at some point we'll get to talk to tish some more but i wish that i could have heard more about like each individual character like why did we put percy in that outfit why did we put annabeth in that outfit why is grover Mm. wearing bright yellow (laughs) like what was the what was the thought process I asked her, because my first question that I had asked her was like, you put so much effort into the shirts, did you put the same effort into the beads? And she was like, oh, that's technically the prop department, not my department, because it moves from scene to scene. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, And then, of course, she sung the praises of the prop department and said they were fantastic. Everyone seems to love everyone on this production team. It's great. The vibes seem immaculate. But then I was like, oh, okay, let me ask you a question that you can't actually answer then. And then I just asked, like, what about the every other aspect of the costume besides the orange shirt? Like, when you're picking, like, Percy's jeans or Clarice's camo pants and boots and whatever. And her answer was basically just like, we just read the book. (laughs) She was just like, we just like, she was like, thankfully the source material is like really thorough. And we just kind of like read the book, got a sense of the character. And then because they're all kid actors, like no one has an ego. So no, no kid actor is like, oh, I refuse to wear this, you know, style of clothes, blah, blah, blah. Um, And that seemed to be just kind of like the resounding answer of a lot of these different people is they were all just like, yeah, we read the book, which is like, wow, what a concept, Chris Columbus. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, there seemed to be a lot of addressing of the like, we really need to make sure everybody knows. So many people are asking them about like, is it going to be different than the movie things that were bad that I think that they're just like ready for those kind of questions. (laughs) Before we get too, too deep into talking about Tish, I do want to play the audio from that conversation. This was a conversation with Tish and Dan Henna, the production designer. So we'll play that now and then we'll keep going because there's there's something in this audio that I also want to bring up. Question for both of you. I'd love to hear where you both started, like when John and Dan or Rick came to you with what they were looking for. What was that first initial conversation like? I think... For me, the, the first initial conversation was based on what ideas I had brought to them. I read the first book. I also looked at the um, illustrated version of the book, so I knew that this were there were elements there that Rick Riordan would have approved of, and that was my basis. Some of it was not specifically drawn, like the character of um, Percy was not specifically drawn. I knew that he went to a school. I knew that he was going to be wearing you know, one costume throughout. I decided in my mind what I would like to do, which was put Percy into a private school. And, but our producers didn't necessarily agree with that. So, you know, our first conversations were about my ideas for the three main characters and their reactions to them. And after we had some initial discussions, then James, our director, came on board. So our two producers weren't necessarily considering the children to be wearing private school uniforms, but 
our English director was. So that's where we that's where we ended ended up. But the process usually was me coming up with ideas based on the book. Like I needed to be true to the book. That was my one directive from you know from them. And then once I presented them with some a body of visual work that they could select their favorites from, then that's how we went forward. And some, occasionally as we went on, you know, through the, um, the different um, episodes, they might have a specific idea. This would be Dan and John would have a specific idea, and then I would try and, you know, follow with them on that. Uh, really, for me, it was uh, read the books, read the books, read the books, you know, and it, it, it pays, you know, because we're telling a story to fans who, they know what it's all about, so we need to know what it's all about and then try and visually find the keys that are going to work for the directors, uh, the producers, Rick, of course, and and even though Rick's written the books, and he he has a vision, you need to find his vision. You know, that and so, so it was a, a lot. A lot of the discussion was about that. Also, I had a group of uh, concept artists working from the very beginning, so we were able to try things. We'll try this. We'll try this. We'll try this. You know. So it's it's not like oh. I'm saying we're going to do it this way. It's not at all. It's always about collaboration. It's also, you know, it's like Tish has, has got uh, an orange T-shirt. You know, we need to fit that. We need to make backgrounds or environments that work. You know, and and also with all, all you know, I mean, the, the the great the story about the costume for the Nyad, Nyad? Nyad. The Nyad, yeah. who was a tree, you know, and, and so we found a tree, Tish made a costume that fitted the tree, and, and so it's all that collaboration. And it, it starts, you know, when you first, in my position, you first get the script sent to you and they say, do you want to do this job? And you go, wow, yeah, this is fantastic. And so from then on, you're on, you know, and you're starting to come up with ideas, and work out things that'll work. And, and you know, in this case, it's, it's a whimsical fantasy about a really serious uh, subject, which is growing up, you know, and I remember it well. It was a long time ago, <laughs> but I do remember it, you know, and so, so you try and bring that into the story. To that end, when you were uh, designing the mythological elements in the mythological world, the you actually the costumes as well as the production, did you find yourself drawing more from history or thinking of it more as just fantasy? Oh, very much from history. You know, I mean, I think we, we sort of got a good start in that we started off in the, in the Met, you know, in, in amongst all the Grecian statues. So we had, that was in our consciousness from the beginning, you know. And so ancient Greece was a, a big player. And, and then it was all about how do we uh, use ancient Greece as an influence without being boring, 
because it could be incredibly boring because everyone knows what it is. So you've got to bring it into another world. And, and I mean, costume-wise... So. No, it's the same thing. I, I hearken back, even in my original interview um, with, with Dan, um, to supplying them with imagery from ancient Greece. <laughs> You know, for even if some of it was, uh, you know, 14th, 15th century versions of what they thought ancient Greece was. But I, I went back in, in time. And then our quest, as it were, um, is to how to incorporate those elements into clothing, um, for instance, with the character Medusa, that is Greek in concept, but is still appropriate for modern wear so it was just finding that right balance where someone can look at the costume and recognize a Grecian element to it but it's still appropriate for somebody wandering around in a, in a modern environment. Did you find yourself pulling for any particular periods of time? Periods? Pardon or me? Did you find yourself pulling from any particular periods? No, it just seemed to be whatever period was appropriate for a particular scene. If it felt 20s to me, then I went 20s. Um, and some, you know, we were kind of jumping all over the place. Some of it was, you know, like 40s influence. So it was just whatever was appropriate for the, for the character. The casino must have been fun. Yes, it was a great, one of my favorite, if not the most favorite projects I've worked on, for sure. I feel like where the characters are standing and what they're wearing really brings an important storytelling aspect. So how does what they're wearing, where they're standing, really amplify the story and drag the audience into the world? Do you want to start or shall I? What? Do you want to start or shall I? <laughs> I I'll start. Yeah. You know, the, the whole thing, ultimately, it's all about performance and it's all about the actors and it's all about the story, you know. So, so what we do is we, we accentuate that and we, we give actors an opportunity, like from a, a production design, art direction point of view, we give actors an opportunity to be somewhere. So in their head, they come onto that set, sometimes we work in a blue screen environment which is like the deadest world possible. And it must be really difficult to provide a performance in that world. And so what I try to do wherever possible is to make a, a world, an environment, even if it's just a table. But it's, it starts off there that this is something they can relate to. This is something that centers them. They know where they are. And for me, I just try and get to the very basic aspects of what their character is because I need that costume to be true to the character and if it's true to the character then hopefully you know it will draw in the audience then of course you have to pick the right palette because it has to work you know within the world Purple that's walls. been yeah created by the you know production design but it also has to work in a multitude of worlds for these particular characters, especially our, our three leads, because they go, you know, from a contemporary world, they go into various aspects of, like, 
fantasy throwback in some of the later episodes. They go to Hades. They go to Olympus. So you have to make sure that your choice is something that works in a number of different environments, but still is very, you know, speaks to who they are as people. Okay. Thank you. Okay. All right. On to the next. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. One thing that Tish brought up that I thought was really interesting in our interview stuff was the boarding school, private school thing. Yeah. She mentioned that, like, there was a whole conversation around whether Yancey should be a private school and that, like, the producers didn't necessarily agree with her that it should be. And I was like, it is a private school. (laughs) It says that (laughs) on the first page. It says, I was a boarding student at Yancey Academy, a private school for troubled kids in upstate New York. No, because we know they filmed outside, like, a private school in Yancey. Like, we know that that was a filming location, right? Yeah, and I thought you you mentioned that, like, it might be that they were considering just Percy having more Sally time or more Gabe time, like, just putting Percy in a situation where he's going home to them every day. Like, we kind of play with that dynamic a little bit more instead of him coming home from boarding school to the two of them which I thought was interesting. Mm. I was very curious about that. But I'm I'm enjoying all of the little changes that I'm seeing. Like if that had if that had been a change that they made, I would have been like, "Interesting, go for it." Would love to see how that changes the story. <laughs> what are some of the changes you've noticed that you've liked? Just curious. Um something that I've been sort of fascinated by is the fact that Percy is now learning the stories from his mom and has grown up with the stories instead of like just learning them in his class with Kyron. Because it seems like now he's, he's like, not just grown up with them, but they've been, like, a core part of his life growing up. Like, in the in the clips that we saw, we saw him, like, doodling them in instead of listening in class. And, like, I mean, not, I don't want to spoil things, but there are other hints. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and I am fascinated by that as, like, a, it was a thing that we talked a little bit about was that Percy does know the stories pretty well and references them a lot in the early books and then it sort of trails off like he doesn't do that necessarily so much by the end of the series but at the beginning he's like oh that's the minotaur oh that's echidna like who knows echidna yeah it, d- it did sometimes reek of like Percy's like I'm a bad student but I'm elite at remembering things from this one guy's class I had for one year <laughs> like, yeah so I think the mom choice makes sense of why he would remember more things and then maybe it's something where like the reason he was better at remembering stuff in Chiron slash Mr. Brenner's class was because his mom told him these stories so then when he's actually learning them he remembers them I think that tracks more than like I hate school wow that one teacher I had was awesome (laughs) I don't know I gotta feel that though you've ever had like one really great teacher it's like it doesn't even matter what the subject is if you've got a great teacher you'll kind of remember. Yeah, no, that's that's valid. Mm. I've been enjoying it mainly from like a, the way that it it adds to what we've been talking about, which is like the theme of storytelling in Percy Jackson and just the fact that these have been stories for Percy for a long time now told to him by his mom instead of like, you know, something he's learning about in class. I think it gives them a lot more emotional weight. Should we also talk about Dan then? Yes. Yeah, while well, we're talking about Tish. He was cool. I liked him. He was the best dressed, I will oh, say. I'm giving him the best yes. dressed award. Cool <laughs> scarf, cool shirt, yeah. He He's worked, I know he worked, I think, as the set designer on Lord of the Rings, which is awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's the production designer, which is basically the person that's kind of overall, it's like if there's an umbrella of all of the design of, like, the scenic design, the costume design, like, all of those kinds of elements, he sort of oversees all of it. Mm-hmm. 
I was interested in the question that you asked, because I'll be honest, I was not a fan of the question that I asked these guys, <laughs> but I didn't expect them to both be at the same table. I was like, I have questions for Tish separately, and I have questions for Dan separately. And when they both sat down together, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I liked your question about like whether it was going to be more history or more mythology fantasy kind of vibes. Um, and the fact that he answered with history was honestly surprising to me. I know. Yeah, it was cool. <laughs> I heard um, during James uh, James Bobin, the director's uh, roundtable, he mentioned like hoplite armor. And I was like, OMG, the terms. <laughs> you know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> and the way what Tish was talking about, because um, I asked the question to both of them, the way she talked about it, I thought was really interesting, too, because she mentioned she'd brought in all these visuals from, she said, like, I think, 14th and 15th century which means she was like bringing in like renaissance art like medieval art of like what roman times or greek and roman times would have looked like and but then she said she also like went back even further dug a little deeper so it sounds like there's definitely going to be a very strong and from the sound of her answer a very well thought out aesthetic yeah i was into that because like just the idea of both looking at imagery from ancient greece but then also looking at like 14th 15th century depictions of ancient greece i was like that makes so much sense like they've sort of gathered their looks over the years as they've moved from culture to culture over time like as a world and in like a world building sense that's really interesting to me yeah Yeah, because i was i was I was thinking about this too because I feel like Camp Half-Blood it's supposed to be like almost like a stockpile of just all of this random stuff people have like left behind and like maybe so I I feel like it'd be really cool to see like easter eggs in that or like I don't want it to all be uniform like I want it to have different influences that's the whole thing I mean the whole thrones like this is what really bugged me when I watched the lightning thief movie is like they all have like the exact same armor and they are all sitting in the exact same chair and they all look exactly the same whereas like in the book what's really fun is that it flips your assumption which is that everybody is going to look the same but it's like Poseidon is boat Jones and Zeus is in a a pinstripe suit and Hades has clothes with like screaming dead people morphing through them and stuff like everyone has such different vibes from each other like Hermes is supposed to be and he's not going to be that based on what we've seen from Lin-Manuel Miranda who is dressed as Lin-Manuel Miranda (laughs) in this TV show like he's supposed to be like a Richard Simmons like short shorts you know but I think that's what's really fun about the Percy Jackson books and I hope that it it feels more like eclectic. It really kind of feels like from when I read it I just imagine it's like each cabin got to decide whatever they wanted and then they made their choices based on that. So I'm hoping it doesn't look and feel uniform and we'll just have to see but the overall impression I got from Dan and Tish is just like everything just feels so intentional like they read the Mm -hmm. source material they took into account the historical things that you two are talking about and it just feels like every choice has a purpose and there's like a reason and it seemed like they were both like trying to find the correct answer as opposed to just like making a choice for the sake of making a choice so I'm really excited to see whatever they turn out because it seemed like they just like took their jobs very seriously Mm -hmm. yeah okay Let's move on to James Bobin. And we can just play the audio up front so that we can talk about it. Executive producer and director of first two episodes. Hello, hello, hello. Hello. How's your Sunday, all right? Yeah. Good. How are you? Good. I'm very happy with uh, the screening we just did. Well, the the panel was really fun because we haven't, you know, I've worked for a long time. So it's nice to get it out there and see people really enjoy it. It was great. Very exciting. (laughs) Thank you. I'm really pleased with it. I'm glad you guys liked it too. It's very exciting. 
Um, I'm curious because I think you've talked a little bit about this um, in the panel, but yep. uh, this is the second children's... Uh, yeah, it's in consecutive ones too. I've been excited to Percy Jackson. I keep doing them, but I like them. I mean, um, I... Um, yeah, sorry, question. Oh, no. no, no. You go first. Question. Um, I was just curious, when you're establishing the first episode yes. of the thing, how do you approach that when you know it's going to expand? With trepidation, it's hard. It's the hardest thing, because obviously everyone who reads a book has an idea about what that book looks like, right? Everyone has that, and so I have that. So part of my job is doing that a bit, but also the idea is like doing, you know, getting a sense of what most what you think is the right thing to do by this character, by all the characters, by the source material and everything, that's really important. And, and the most important thing is the world building, because this is a world in which, in episode one, Sally Jackson tells her son that his dad is a god. And so you have to create a world whereby that is not only possible, but feels really plausible. And so, you know, we often talked about a world which is very emotionally grounded and very realistic, which is what we've created, but also a world which has this thread of kind of magic mystery to it, which is really important. Obviously, we're going to go to some crazy places. Um, and so, you know, we just talk about movies like E.T. and stuff like that, because E.T. is basically a very emotionally grounded movie but it's got an alien in it. <laughs> so we're quite similar to that in some ways tonally because we have this quite, you know, emotionally grand story about a guy trying to save his mom. And it's a big deal. And, but at the same time, there are minotaurs in it, there are gods in it, you know what I mean? It's really important that those things feel as real and as tangible as the everyday world of his mum's kitchen does. You know what I mean? That has to be a thing. So it's quite hard. But I think for me, it's about everyone taking it. The characters themselves believe that world. And so when you have that, they take it seriously, you are happy to be there, and you do start to think these things are possible, which is great. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of the challenge in the beginning. How do you um, reintroduce, but also introduce characters mm. to the screen? Mm. Like, for like, not the first time, but sure. some the first time. Yeah. But uh, how, do you, how do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I cast them. I don't know, it's that thing, you just sort of know, when you read the books, when you read the scripts, you always have a sense in it, you know, of who this person is to a degree. So when people come in for the castings, they generally fulfill those expectations to a degree. Not always. Sometimes people bring in other elements you haven't even considered, but there's something about them that feels like the character's soul. That's the most important thing. I always say this about acting. It's about the idea that there's an element of their soul about it. It's like some sort of old soul thing where it's very connected to the character you like. Um, and it's not about necessarily about performance or reading, it's about being. And that's a really complicated thing to express, but it is what it is. Um, in this show, we were quite lucky because we got Walker pretty early. He came in and was great straight away. And Walker was, Walker was Percy in many ways, not just reading the script. Walker felt like Percy just generally. <laughs> like he really did feel like Percy like came in and it's quite jokey, but quite vulnerable, but smart and just complicated. But you like him for it and he's very charming. And that's a very, Percy is that, you know. And so he read the lines and thought, great. But I mean, you just being you is also pretty good. So, but obviously he's also a fantastic actor and there are places he has to go in this story, which are pretty deep, you know, his relationship with Annabeth and his relationship with his mom and, it, you know, stuff he has to talk about is pretty heavy. Uh, and so I knew he'd have the acting chops to push that too, because we'd start reading with him and we'd start doing chemistry reads with other people and that was also useful because when we started he cast first so we could bring him back to read with other people and he was very generous with that and very good with that and that really did help us because you could start picturing the group like how they fit together as a three because that is a really important part of the show as you know like it's, it's the core of the show um, and so for that to work once you've got that engine working the rest of it will be fine so just just you know those other people Arian and Leia started into that very nicely and they became a group you could see that it's great to spend time with because the show they're in the show a lot so you know if I may follow up with that yes did you have any uh, did you feel any pressure from the fan base of course <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's a bit, as I said, it's like, like when you do Muppets, like everyone likes Muppets, right? So it's like, it's like trying to do a thing whereby you go, 
this is the version of the Muppets that I like. I hope you guys like it too, because it's what I like. Um, and generally that so far has worked okay for me. And so with Percy, it was the same thing. You got given this kind of very precious world to, to create and look after and bring into existence. And hopefully it'll be something that everyone will enjoy. And I think for me, I, you know, because I think that a lot of people like the same things about the books, the characters, the worlds, the fact that you want to be in this world, you want to be at Camp Half-Blood, all this stuff felt really important to me. And to be fair, I also checked, checked with my kids. My kids are, at the time were like 15, 13 and 10. So they're right smack bang in the whole, you know, they love these books dearly. And so it was very helpful for me talking about why they like them and that sort of thing. And it's really helpful. And it was about the fact of, you know, the characters are fantastic, they love the characters, they love the world, they love the monsters, they love the... But they also like the idea of being there. You know what I mean? It's the idea of, like, you could be at Camp Half-Blood. And so what was really fun was that when we shot last year, my kids are in Camp Half-Blood. So they are in the back of the scenes where Luke and Percy are talking about giving gifts to the gods, like there's the offerings and stuff. They're the burnt offerings, they're in that scene. And they're at the beginning of Capture the Flag. <laughs> they are somewhere in the Capture the Flag, there's three of my kids, so they loved that. And my son, who is this huge fan of Rex, met Rick, and Rick was just delightful, so lovely about it. His birthday happened whilst we were filming the sequence, and the props master said, as a birthday present, you may keep your suit of armour you're wearing currently as a, as a half-light. It was amazing. So we, in our house back in the UK, he has in his room very carefully preserved this entire set of Greek armour, which is very sweet, and he loves it, it's his favourite thing. <laughs> you mentioned their daughter studied Greek and Latin because yeah, of the books and totally. I thought that was funny because mm -hmm. it's the same. Mm. <laughs> I was wondering if she was bugging you about anything in particular. <laughs> yeah, not like, yeah, kind of. But she's, it's funny enough, she's going to Greece this week to go start doing more studying. She loves it. And so it's really, yeah, no, that whole thing. It's a, but she likes Greek history too. Like she loves all that, you know, the real stuff. And, and she also likes Greek plays and literature. And so that's really important to her. And I'm sure, you know, it's just Rick is someone who makes you interested in other societies and cultures. That's his main job has been to me, be it Greek or Roman or Viking or whatever, you know, it feels like that's what he does. And now he's doing Gaelic and Irish and that stuff, and I love that too. And so I think he really likes the idea of bringing cultures to people, things you may not have thought about. But I think his first go, of course, was Greek, because Rick has said, well, no, and it's a great idea, because I think these days a lot of people know about Greek mythology because of Percy Jackson way more than we do about anything else, and that's great. So, yeah, no, she loves that stuff, and it's really funny. So I'm, I don't know any Greek. I'm okay at Latin. I've got bits of Latin, but she can read Greek, which is nuts, and so that's really fun. <laughs> um, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you are approaching these characters. Mm. Um, what is it that draws you to, you know, Percy and other characters? Well, they, on different days you like different ones, I guess, what it is. That's always the way in this world. Um, they have, they are different, they are all likeable, but different elements of a people who are, and they feel very real to me. I love them about because they have struggles, and I think that's really, really, why they're popular is because you might know someone like Annabeth, you might know someone like Grover, that's what your friends are like. And Rick's great at drawing those characters, probably because he's a teacher, he's seen a lot of kids in his life, so he knows they're like, and so they feel incredibly real to me. Um, and they get put in difficult situations and do the right thing, which is also great, and I love their choices they make because they're smart. Um, and so for me it's about creating that, about reflecting the characters I've read in the book and how they feel and then with the actors saying, you know, these are your, we talk about characters a lot as actors and they, we give them the background and they then grow into that character. And I think all these three kids did a brilliant job of that whereby I now, you know, when I, when I read it now I just see them, which is weird. <laughs> but they are them, it's like Walker's is Percy now for me and it's such a funny thing. I mean it wasn't when I first met him but it is now, that's what it is. Because they bring something of themselves to it. And, it really, it, and, and because they're so close to how we envisioned in the first place, they really, that really is an unusual thing. But I love that about them. They're so, you know, they're so, um, 
they, they get on in a really interesting way and I, I, like, I think that's just so great because it just helps the show because it gives a real good en engine of interaction. There's something so special about Percy Jackson mm. for so many people, especially for myself. Yes. So what was it like bringing these characters to life with this series? Amazing. I mean, really amazing because obviously, as you said, it's really a popular... It, like everyone, you know, it's a thing that people know very well. Um, and it was just really an amazing opportunity to do that. And I was so pleased to get a chance to do it because I wanted to do them, you know, do this stuff justice. It's really important to get that right. And to have Rick like it is a really important thing too. So we love that about it. It's really cool. Thank you very much. Thank you. Love it. Thank you. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you. James was a delight. Yes. Yeah. He was so ready to talk as soon as he sat down. <laughs> yes. I know. <laughs> yes. He also, at least in our round table, he is so confident. Like mm -hmm. every question, I feel like I, my questions, other questions, people are like, were you worried about this? Like, was there pressure because you're doing the first two episodes and that kind of sets the tone for the series? And he was just like, no. Nah. <laughs> like, he was just like, ah, I'm, I, I feel good about what we did. Like, yeah, I loved it. He, he feels like he is like the, I guess the producer director version of like ice in his veins in sports, where he was just like, no, I'm good at my job. Like, I'm, I'm really excited for the first two episodes. Yeah, I do feel like that's like, I feel like I, the more directors I've worked with, just in my general life, the more I've realized there's a thing I call director brain, though, where mm. it's just like. You're sort of, you're used to being the one that's really having to guide the ship. So I feel like coming and being like, I know exactly what I'm going for. I know exactly what I'm going to try to do to get there. It, it vibes with that, I feel right. like. You came in um, ready to direct each of our tables. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was excited to ask. I mean, I asked him probably what everyone else asked him, which was like, how do you deal with setting up the entire world in those first episodes? But I had seen him do it in the Mysterious Benedict Society because he, he directed the first episode of the Mysterious Benedict Society. It was one of my favorite books. It was my favorite book when I was a kid at a certain point. And he kind of nailed it. Like there's there's a really cool tone and vibe in that, in that first episode that just really fits the Mysterious Benedict Society. So I'm excited to see what he does with Percy Jackson. And he's also had so much experience with like like Muppets, Dora. I loved Dora. I was, <laughs> I was crushed that I didn't. I just didn't know him until after someone mentioned that he did the Muppets, and I was so mad because I for sure would have asked him, "Okay, if we're making Muppets, Percy Jackson, which character is played by a human, <laughs> and who do you cast?" Like, oh, I was so upset that I didn't know that until after he had left my table. Oh man, <laughs> That'd be a great question. You might get a low key character insight from that. Mm -hmm. I know. I'll have to see if I if I get a chance to to speak with him again. Who knows? Now that I'm reputable <laughs> journalist Mike Schubert. Right. Yeah. <laughs> he did generally I just loved how much he seemed to really have a strong connection to not just like the actors, but also like the material and like how I don't know, I, I got the sense that he had a very strong vision yeah. of working with these kids, which was awesome. And also, I like that he has a daughter who studied Greek and Latin because I know he's thinking about her when he's making decisions. The one thing that I talked to him about in my roundtable was that because I had asked him, did you feel pressure doing the scenes that aren't in the books because there's mm -hmm. extra stuff added? You know, are you worried because that's more likely for people to be like, well, that didn't happen in the books. Are people going to be more upset? And he just said no, mainly because he talked to Rick a lot. So I think Rick probably had a lot of input especially with him directing the first two episodes. It seems like Rick had a pretty clear vision of like, here are the extra things I want to add and then gave James the reins to kind of bring those ideas to life. But he said that he was just pretty confident in what he did there because of Rick 
And I think that's really cool. That seems like they worked together pretty closely. They mentioned in the panel that Rick and Becky like moved up to Vancouver for a lot of the shooting, mm-hmm. which was awesome. So they were like really there. It wasn't that just like they flew them in like for like a day. It sounds like it sounds like they were like really hands on the whole time. Yeah. All right, John and Dan. Mm-hmm. John and These Dan. These guys were great. John was great. I think it's an underrated element. John was so good on the panel of like mm-hmm. answering the questions, getting other people involved, and like not hogging the the microphone time too much like he he was very good about answering intentionally and then kind of passing down to the the rest of the people and it just i just appreciated that as like improviser and professional conversation haver he was good at that and i really liked his his just the way he handled himself on the panel yeah i i really enjoyed that specifically because like you don't see a lot of those people on a stage like that ever. Like the, the yeah. designers, the visual effects people. Like I was so excited to hear what they had to say. And I was like, I'm going to I'm gonna hear a lot from John. I don't know how much I'm going to actually get to hear from these people outside of like very niche interviews. Because like that's where you find interviews with like the designers and stuff. You'll find like one article per season. <laughs> like when I was doing my research, it was hard for me to find content about them beforehand because I was trying to figure out like you know I wanted to watch some interviews with like Jeff White and there really haven't been many in the last 10 years so I was so excited that he was you know giving everyone the space to do that yeah I think especially on a show where there's so much fantasy and there's so much world building they have to do physically with just like completely new things it's such a like I it's just so important so it's really awesome that they got the spotlight in terms of what they actually said in our interviews. I thought it was funny because usually I'm in the anxious mess and Phoebe's like completely fine, but it was like the opposite because she's such a big fan of theirs. Yeah, I am not the type to get starstruck or nervous meeting people that I admire, but I I am a massive Black Sails fan, um, Mm -hmm. so I'm very familiar with their work. Have you, you're not a Black Sails girl. I, the only thing I've ever heard of the show is people being like, for the actors who are holdovers from that into Percy Jackson, people are like, oh, I love them in Black Sails. And I was like, didn't know that existed but cool I, I saw the other pirate show i watched our flag means death right so you should watch black sales it's better I should. <laughs> oh nice hot takes it's 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 one um, of the best shows um ever made in my opinion yeah phoebe also without me made an entire youtube video comparing the writer's room of black sales to the percy jackson stuff Ooh, which is very fun that's cool yeah um, when they announced that that these guys were working on percy jackson i was like oh I'm about to rewatch Black Sails with like a magnifying glass, just like, nice. like spotting any any anything and everything that could have to do with Percy Jackson. It actually wasn't that hard to draw connections. Everyone should go watch Black Sails. But I had also heard John talk plenty about stories and how he makes stories on Fathoms Deep, which is a Black Sails podcast that uh, everyone should also listen to, <laughs> co-hosted by Daphne Olive, who is also a staff writer on Percy Jackson, um, who I got to meet in person finally at Comic-Con, which was so much fun. But because I had heard him talk about stories so much, I was like, I gotta have good questions for this guy. <laughs> so I think that was where all of that energy was coming from. I was like, this is someone who I want to talk story with and the character with especially you'll hear in my questions character was the main thing i was focusing on but yeah i was just i was thrilled to get to talk to these guys so here is the audio from that interview 
Thank you. Hi. Awesome. Amazing. I'm Emily, co-host of the podcast. Nice. How long have you guys been doing it? Um, not long, almost a year. But <laughs> That's long. That's pretty long. I guess, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm Lara. I'm with uh, WMSC, which is Montclair State's radio station. And this is Nino, and this is Jolie. Nice. Hi, guys. Nice Hi. to meet you. Um, so, to kick us off, um, I would love to talk a little bit about Percy. <laughs> <laughs> Good start. Um, because he's I, just such a complicated character to me. Um, and so I'm curious whether there are things that really draw you to Percy that you were really trying to make sure came through in adaptation. Um, I think um, he is, he's so relatable, right? Like he is um, both means well and can't get out of his own way. Um, he is going through um, a transition and a, and a, um, a moment in his life where um, he, everything he thought made sense doesn't anymore. Everything that didn't make sense has started to come into context. And who hasn't felt that way? Um, and so I think a little bit of, of you know, what, what was what was important to us was um, the tone of a sense of humor, which I think um, you know to Rick and Becky and, and to us was really core to what the what this this experience is. Um, but I think and the the honesty of his. Um, his experiencing this situation, I think, was really important, and um, really kind of understanding that we're telling a story as much about his humanity as we are about his relationship to a god. Um, I think that was the lens through which um, the story made the most sense to me. Uh, for me, I, I have to give a lot of credit to John and to Rick in the adaptation of it, because I, I think there there's a connection that he has with his mother that I think was deep in the book but is now so much deeper in 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 what these guys brought to on the were brought to the story on the page uh, of, of the series um, and it's really so much of that and to launch this story to launch Percy's story is that emotional connection he has with his mother that takes him on this journey losing her not a spoiler, you know, getting her back. That, that there is um, that there is just something about that dynamic that I think most people can connect to on that level, uh, as a parent, as a child, um, and the depth of that emotional bond I think comes through in the show in a really, really profound way. Still focusing on the characters, um, but how does it feel to bring these characters to life to a new generation, but also to a returning generation that have read them when they came out and have read them a few years ago and are reading them just now? I think it felt important for the show to feel timeless. I think it felt important for um, you to be able to come to it whether you hadn't read them in 15 years and it's um, nostalgia that's what's that's what's kind of um, um, manifesting in, in your experience or you've read them every year for the last 15 years or you just read them or you never read them. How many times have you guys read them? <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that it didn't matter. Um, you know, we, we, we tried really hard to steer clear of um, jokes that were going to get stale in six months um, or of trying to... Um, go out of our way to show you that this took place in 2005. It just wasn't about that. It's such a universal experience. Um, and I think we live in a culture in which things change so quickly, it's hard to find a way to tell a timeless story. 
Um, and I think that's probably why so many of the set pieces and locations that, that we go through um, have withstood a fair amount of time. You know, we're at the Gateway Arts, it's been there for quite a while. We're at Vegas, it's been there Empire for State a while. Building. The Empire State Building. And, um, and so th- that was the goal. The goal was um, that everyone is going to come to this and what time you think it takes place in is going to have more to do with how you feel about it than what the show is saying. Speaking of which, uh, since it's been so long since The Lightning Thief was published and since even in the rest of the series we've seen so much growth and development of the world um, just in the books, did you find yourself approaching any of the themes of the story, like uh, what it means to be a hero or like Western civilization, differently now that um, that so much time has passed? Um, it's hard to say differently because this has all been such a conversation with Rick about um, you know what he wanted um, what he um, what he wishes he did differently um, you know and, and, and a real sense of, um, of honesty in that conversation from you know from from Becky um, I think we embraced the spirit of both the story and the spirit with which he wrote the story which is um, that this is a world and a story in which there's a place for everybody um, and in which you really ought to be able to find um, your experience in a meaningful way um, on, on the screen, on the page on the screen. Um, so I, I think that was sort of the, the, the intent going into it. And what's the most fulfilling part about seeing these characters on the screen and seeing the story come to just a whole life? I, I'm just so proud of these kids. <laughs> like, you, when you work on a production like this that is so extensive, um, it, we shot for many, so many months that just seeing them bring this to life uh, was was pretty remarkable. This was not an easy task for any kid. Um, they don't opportunities don't come around like this very often where they are they're working for 160 straight days. These kids um, and 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 the responsibility that we have that Rick has that they have to, to bring these characters to everyone's everyone's been imagining for a very long time they they just um, they just landed it um, the chemistry between them the, the dynamics between them I just um, when I when I think about them uh, it, it makes me really proud of what we what we achieve still the kids because <laughs> I, I love seeing that they're, they're children and um, what has the journey been like so far with them um, amazing <laughs> I mean you you um, you know we talk to other producers who have cast kids in, in big projects and um, looking for the secret answer of how do you know and, and, and what are you really looking for and um, the most successful versions of that the answer from the people who cast them was you don't and you're kind of just hoping for the best you're looking for something that is probably going to be totally indefinable um, that makes you feel like this is the right the right target to shoot at and the right partner to bring on um, and to do it to do that once and get it right is a miracle um, to try to do it three times with three kids who are rarely in scenes with adults um, is wildly unusual um, Harry Potter doesn't work that way um, and to hope that you're going to get three kids who can pull it off and then ask them to be telling really complicated stories about um, what it's like to be different and what it's like for your parents to be different and what it's like for you to see them struggle with that and not blame them for it. Um, that's a lot. And they all nailed it. 
and the chances of that happening were probably way slimmer than I care to consider, <laughs> but they did, and so it's been um, it's been a pretty um, a wildly rewarding experience, but pretty pretty great. I remember when um, the casting call went out for Annabeth, I was surprised by some of the stuff that was in it. Um, specifically, the idea that she was trying to reconnect with her humanity, that wasn't something I had really thought about before. So can you talk a little bit about your approach to Annabeth in this story? Um, I think, you know, with any of these characters, I'm, I'm, I am trying to um, meet them where they are on the page, and I'm trying to do justice to the character that everyone read, and I'm also trying to find the things that are, that are interesting to me about it, and the thing that was most interesting to me about her was that she was just as lonely as person was, um, without a mom who loved her in the same way. And so, what does that mean? What does it mean to grow up like Percy did, feeling like there's no one like you? and you can't really connect to anybody and not have Sally telling you it's okay. And so from there it felt a little bit like um, that's probably a kid who maybe struggles to make friends in a meaningful way. Um, or a kid who doesn't know what it's like to have a friend who is a real peer who can understand where they're coming from. And building that, that story's in the book, um, to, to kind of bring it out and bring it up in the mix and let that be the way we approach the launch to Percy and Annabeth. So that what you're watching in the first half of the season is them realizing um, you're the first person I've ever felt this way about, felt like that lived. If you feel that when you're watching it, then we're, we're on the fairway at least, I think, in terms of where we should be. And, and hopefully we're, we're pretty close to the bullseye of where we want that story to go eventually. Guys, Thank this you. was awesome. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Can't wait to listen nice to, to your podcast. Oh, would you like a sticker? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Please. we got to get a podcast sticker. Oh, we get a podcast sticker? That's awesome. Oh, this is awesome. That's so cool. I think my favorite part of this interview, though, is the quote about Annabeth. Yes. Yeah. Because when I when I asked the question, like when I saw the casting call, my thought was that like I haven't really thought about the the fact that Annabeth hasn't seen the world outside of camp in years at this point and probably has like immersed herself so much in the mythological world over the last five years that she doesn't really know how to engage with it. So I was thinking on the level of like she hasn't seen a McDonald's in five years. (laughs) 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 Like that was what I thought we meant by separated from humanity. But instead we ended up talking more about like where she's starting off as a character and her relationship with Percy, which I loved because like you said, that is a story that we're getting in the books you know that Annabeth like we said in uh, our first episode she's really bad at people and she doesn't always say the right thing like in fact she often says the wrong thing <laughs> and, and does struggle <laughs> to make like those immediate connections with people all throughout the series um, like all of that is very difficult for her and I don't think we ever actually totally attributed it to anything specific except for like her being neurodivergent but I think that there's some truth in what John is saying here, that she grew up in an environment in which, you know, every member of her family was distant from her. And then Luke and Thalia build her into their family, but they're both, like, significantly older than her. You know, she's the baby. She's not a peer. Plus, Luke is kind of her opposite because he is charismatic and he's a friend to everybody. And he might have had the same experience of being sort of alone and unable to connect with people growing up, but... That just isn't how he responded to it, where it is how Annabeth responded to it, and it is kind of how Percy responded to it, because he's also alone outside of Grover. So I was I was very into this answer. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. I liked the things they said on the panel. John was really great about the casting. 
he said something where I, I think the moderator asked something about the kids and all of that. And him and Dan both said really nice things about the kids. And then John said, look, there would be ways to easily dodge this question if we wanted to, but we don't need to because they're great. And yeah. I love that he was like, bullshitting this question is super easy, but I promise you they're actually really good, uh, which I thought was cool. And then John also talked about casting funny people because he just thought, first off, if you can be funny, you can be anything, which I thought was great. I was like, oh, he's talking to me. Uh, but then also I liked that he mentioned, well, the books are funny, so we should have actors who are funny and we should have people who have experience acting in comedic productions because these are funny books. And that gave me so much confidence about the TV show because it's, I think, one of the most important things is that these books are really funny. And that was one of the more frustrating things when I watched the bad movie. Is like, mm-hmm. I don't think Percy tells a joke. Like, there's nothing, he doesn't say anything funny <laughs> in the entire film. Nope. Like, the script just has no jokes for famous for telling jokes guy Percy Jackson. So <laughs> I'm glad that it seems like comedy is at the forefront in this because, yeah, these books are hilarious. So I'm glad that that seems to be. An emphasis. Yeah. We haven't even mentioned that, like, Aryan and Walker in those first seven minutes, like, they're killing it. Th- those first they're seven so minutes are so good. funny and so good. They're so good. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if, if we explained it or, or whatever, but we got to see the first seven straight up minutes of the episode, which was really cool. They put up the most intimidating do not film this warning thing that I've ever seen. I, I didn't want to film it, but I wanted to take a picture of the warning because yeah. the warning was know, like, it was so scary. And it like, was up there I, for it, so long. It was so long. The text was so big. The screen was so big. We were like in the front row because that's where press was. And I really wanted to just take a picture because it was like, we will come to your house and slap you yeah. in the face. Like it was so scary. <laughs> but you're totally right. Like the chemistry between Walker and Aryan was awesome. My favorite thing, and this did make its way into the trailer, but only like a little clip of it, when they go to eat their sandwiches at the Met, they open them up and they trade lunch meat with each other, which I was like, thank God. Like, they uh. they finally, like, that is the shit that you do <laughs> in middle school. Like, I would have friends where, like, I my mom wouldn't buy me fruit roll-ups and his mom wouldn't buy him, like, kudos, you know, chocolate things. And we would trade, like, every day. Like, it's such, oh, God, it made me so happy. I think that was the thing that made me the most happy out of anything was them trading lunch meat with each other. <laughs> I wonder if maybe it was Grover giving Percy his meat because he's vegetarian. Oh, mm. well, no, because they swap. Maybe Sally knows Grover's vegetarian and is like, I'm going to give you tofu. Right, maybe it's like a tofurky thing or something. <laughs> the thing that's made me happiest, which is also in the trailer, is Percy in his little red, his little red raincoat. Yeah, you pointed that out. I totally forgot that he wears that. So that's really cool that they kept that. I was so happy to see it. Yeah, it goes to show that they took the source material seriously, which is really cool. Yeah, it felt like such a small moment because, like, the only reason he's wearing the red raincoat is so that he can do the, like, bullfighter, you know, wave the red raincoat at the bull joke later. And I was like, (laughs) you you don't have to do that. But they did. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. I feel like my favorite of the three, although I loved the Minotaur scene so much, um, but my favorite, I think, was Capture the Flag just because that was where I noticed differences between how it goes down in the books and how it is in the show, at least as far as we've seen. And there were differences that really spoke to, I think, something that Dan and John were talking about in the panel, which was how they as showrunners, their philosophy is to be faithful so that the fans get what they have been dying to see forever, but also to bring out new aspects of the story that you might not have thought about, which, um, and I know, Mike, you haven't seen the musical, but that there's parts of the musical that do that too, that were my favorite parts, because 
that it's always so cool like when media is adapted you always want to feel like you're getting you know a new look at things yeah and sometimes even if it's a faithful adaptation it doesn't necessarily mean it's a great adaptation mm-hmm. correct I think that's really smart because, like, I just played the Spider-Man 2 video mm. game, and the big thing is, like, Harry is Venom, which is, like, yeah. not how it normally is. But, like, yeah, it's way more emotional to have Peter Parker's best friend be his biggest villain or at least one of the biggest villains as opposed to, like, some random jerk that he works with. Like, <laughs> it's so much more emotional. And at least it's just fun. I think and I hope that fans, when things aren't exactly the same just go, oh, this is a different take on it, but it's like still faithful. Because, yeah, in the Capture the Flag thing, I think the biggest difference I noticed, spoiler alert, in case no one wants to know, um, but like Annabeth pushes Percy into the water. And in the book, doesn't yeah. he kind of, he like falls into the water, right? But this one, it just like, at least from the little clip, and we'll have to see, because we didn't get to see a lot of before or after, it kind of gives the impression that like Annabeth is like putting together the pieces based on the stuff that she's seen like she kind of is getting there before he does and then it's just like let's let's just make this kid figure it out and i thought that's cool and like yeah it's different but i think it's a fun choice so i hope that when those choices are made like you're saying emily just because something isn't like 100 percent faithful doesn't mean it's like wrong it's just different and i hope people can like recognize that and that's the same thing why people getting mad at like annabeth for being played by a black girl or percy having blonde hair like dude who cares like it's that's so unimportant in the grand scheme of things i'm just excited to see like everyone's performance one other small thing that i wonder if either of you also thought well first of all we got to see luke sword fighting amazing spectacular Mm. incredible but at the end of his like sword fighting scene he's talking to chris rodriguez and he says about percy like don't worry he'll be ready and in my head i was like oh they're planning on like trying to bring Percy to their side or like do it like they're talking Kronos stuff in like a subtle enough way that no one's gonna get it oh uh, okay yeah because when I was reading I was like oh capture the flag but oh I see what you're saying because then it like cuts to Percy and it's like he's he's goofing off in the in the woods and so it's just like funny but in my head I was like if it's Luke I'm paying attention to every word that's coming out of his mouth (laughs) I mean I can totally see that though because I feel like that's something else that it's like a way to enhance it is to Easter egg, to put in like a lot of Easter eggs of that thing where longtime fans will, who know how it's going to end, are going to be like, ooh. Yeah. I've been talking to anyone who will listen to me about this. I, <laughs> I even said it in my video essay and I'm going to quote myself. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> when you're writing a book series, there's no second draft of the book series. Like you can get to book five and realize that there are things that you should have planted in like book one or book two. And this is the second draft of the Percy Jackson series, which I am like so thrilled to see. Like I can't wait to see what you do when you like actually know how the entire story is about to go. Because like we've we've read Rick's writing. We know he's not planning that. and so i'm excited to see what they choose to drop in from later books or even from i don't know if they will but from like heroes of olympus or trials of apollo if any of that will show up yeah i mean rick from some of his quotes about adding extra things just said that you know he's given the opportunity to put more into the series that he was able to put into the into the book whether that was you know size of the book limits or just things he didn't think of so because he's been so involved in it, it does feel like anything extra we're going to get is going to be cool and intentional and not just like a change for the sake of making a change. Everything, like I've been saying, feels very intentional and like it has a purpose. And that's not just, I also talked about this in my video. Everyone should just go watch my video essay. (laughs) But um, (laughs) I feel like basically every writer who's in this writer's room who I've seen work from 
that's how they think about adapting stories. Like that's how they approach taking a book and putting it on screen. I, I remember a quote specifically from Monica Wusubreen, who's writing, I think, episode three, where she talked about when she was writing Midnight Texas, which is based on a book. She was thinking more about like what's in the book and what can I add to it and how can I expand this world rather than like what am I changing here? It's not so much what am I changing here, it's just mm -hmm. how can I build on this and make it like the best version of itself. That's also why I'm like really, like I know like we've, there's been a lot of jokes about Lin-Manuel Miranda being in this, but like I am actually so excited to see what they do with Hermes in season one. I am yeah. fascinated cool. by the fact that he's in this season. <laughs> I know. I'm like, so curious. Especially because they were talking so much about parenthood being a theme. And then also James Bobbin said, the director said Luke was his favorite character. Uh -huh. I want to know what a pre-Luke betrayal Hermes is like. You know, like, what, know. what is, does he know anything? Is that why he's there? Does he not know mm, anything? And we're just setting him up as like the dad before all of this. I'm very curious. Should we give Comic-Con a bead? Oh my god. Yeah, so at the end of all of our episodes, we give a bead. Okay. So if you were to, to design a bead based on your experience at Comic-Con to put on your Camp Half-Blood necklace, <laughs> what would be yeah. on it? Um, mine would be, it would be one of those, like, the, the Groucho Mark glasses with, like, the glasses and the nose and the mustache, because I felt like an imposter, but I had a good time. <laughs> <laughs> We'll do variations on imposters, and I'll do one from Among Us. Ooh. Ooh. Love it, love it, love it. I was gonna say a camp, an official Camp Half Blood pin. Um. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Did you get the pin? I got the shirt. Did you get any? You got of the, the shirt. I was shirt? dying yeah. for the shirt. How did you get a shirt? I just got. They just had them like on a table. I guess I got there like early enough. We asked them for one of the ones on the table and they wouldn't give them to us. Oh, really? They like. Well, then what else were they there for? When I walked in, they just like handed me one. This is the worst. I do have a pin, but now I'm, now I'm upset about it. <laughs> I had to play trivia for this pin. They made me dance for this pin. Yes. I heard that they were doing that for people. They made people like put in work for the pins. Yeah, I got to Comic-Con a little bit later, so Phoebe was just telling me that apparently none of the trivia questions were hard enough for her. Yeah, so they asked me. They asked me for harder trivia questions. Wow. Jeez. Okay. <laughs> I mean, the, the hard question that they asked me was, what kind of tree does Thalia get turned into? Isn't it just a pine? Yeah. Yeah, that's not hard. Yeah. And when I asked for more, just for fun, they asked me, like, <laughs> <laughs> who are the big three? And I was like, okay, guys. Oh, <laughs> oh come, on. My, come on. Thank you all for listening to Monster Donut. Um, thank you, Mike, for joining us. Thank you for having me. This was a delight. Of course. Please... Tell the people where they can find you. Sure. Uh, if you want to find my podcast, The Newest Olympian, you can just search for The Newest Olympian wherever you get your podcasts. You can go to our website, thenewestolympian.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, at Newest Olympian. And then if you want to find me, uh, I'm shub17, S-C-H-U-B-E-S-1-7 on Twitter and Instagram. And I have a website for all the other podcasts I make, which is just shubes, S-C-H-U-B dot E-S. And um, are you going to be doing, are you going to also have clips from your roundtables yeah. on your podcast? Yeah, so I'm going to be doing episodes about the TV show, like when they come out. So basically, like, TV show episodes are coming out on Wednesdays. Each following Monday, I'll make an episode about whatever was just covered. So, you know, whatever episode came out a couple of days ago. And then I'll either make, like, a, a little 
episode with like my roundtable stuff or I'll just like find ways to to work it into those TV show episodes but I will be covering the TV show in some capacity and I'm excited to to watch it and to cover it and see what all translates from book to screen it'll be really fun yeah and if you'd like to find us on social media we are at pjopod on Twitter Instagram and TikTok and you can find links to our merch shop and our print shop and our new website in our link tree on those socials the next episode will probably be the Burning Maze episode. I think this will go up like immediately. Okay. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow-up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.